tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Hello and welcome to Springboard, your virtual university. My name is Albert Okran, welcoming you on behalf of Team Springboard, led by Comfort. This is your most inspirational show and the point of convergence for the greatest minds. Springboard is brought to you by the Springboard Ratio Foundation in partnership with the Multimedia Group and proudly sponsored by MTN Pulse, the enterprise group UMB Bank, with support from the graphic business. On Tuesday, Wherever you are, look for the graphic business open page 18 and everything we say today will be transcribed in full for your attention and enjoyment. So we've been traveling this very interesting journey that has become a blockbuster series called The Engine Room. Getting behind the scenes with frontliners, finding out the what, the why, the where, the whom, the how, the tears, the broken hearts, the remending of those hearts and all the lessons in the journeys of people that are making it in various fields. We've traversed the corporate life, art and entertainment, ministry, um, governance, and various fields of endeavor. Today, I have a very special guest I have been observing from afar for quite a while. She's an engineer, an Anglican priest, an author of a book, I think, everyone needs to have. The book is called Broken for Use. The past 24 hours of my life have been spent trying to unravel every single word in this book. And I can tell you from an author that this book is a masterpiece. My guest for today is Reverend Ekuya Oforibuatin. Rev, good to see you. It's very good to see you, Reverend. Oh, call me Albert. (laughs) Let me congratulate you on this what I think is a beautiful write. You write very, very well. Thank you. It's the grace of God. Thank you very much. It's, I love African literature, if I may use that broad terminology. And over the years, I've, it's, one of my, it's one of my dreams to have content from African writers enter every single space, fiction, biographies, inspirational stuff. And very often, it's difficult to get a book that you take and you want to read till you finish. And I can tell you, your book is one such book I have enjoyed the read so far. I'm so glad. Coming from you, I'm really glad to hear that. Who or what provoked or tempted you to write? (laughs) You know, I didn't want to write this book. It was a two-year battle between God and I about writing the book. And his argument was that people needed to read a real person's story and a real young person's story. Because all of us, when we are young, we have certain struggles that we go through. And there's nothing to read. There's nothing to relate to. There's nothing to guide you through. There's nothing to make you feel as if you are normal and that somebody else has experienced this. 
But since you've read the book, um, clearly I was concerned about vulnerability. There's so much, it exposes so much of, of my life, what I've been through. And I was concerned about what the blowback would be. But God kept assuring me that I would cover you. There would be no problem. Just write it. So eventually I just gave in and I wrote it. I wrote it in a really short amount of time and just got it done. I'll tell you why I think this book will do very well. It's very authentic. It's very real. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that backs the book is the credibility of the author. Apart from the father, you, you call it vulnerability, but you are very honest about your feelings, your fears, and I will go into all that. Yeah. But what also connects with people is your accomplishments and why you... So for the benefit of those who may not have met Reverend Nikia Oferibuatin, she's the director of programs for the Anglican Diocese of Accra, member of the United States Trade Advisory Committee for Africa, member of the board of Utum for Osage 2 Foundation, and you served in 2020 as member... Uh, eminent advisory committee member yes. of the Electoral Commission of Ghana. Yet you look young, and <laughs> and so I'm sure for any young person looking at you, especially a young lady looking at you, you're like, that's what I want to be. So you opening up your life in that way, for me, was very special. Mm-hmm. Let's start the journey. I doubt we'll be able to unpack <laughs> your life in an hour, but let's see what we can do uh, from the points that touched me the most. Okay. And I will start from, not surprisingly, your eighth birthday and a prayer for God to send you a good news Bible <laughs> instead of the regular cake from your auntie. Help us to understand what was going on in your mind when you were a child. So, you know, at seven, I was almost eight at this time. I was at Richard's school and my mom just couldn't find this Bible. You know, I was going to class four. I was going to become a senior at Red Church. And everybody was supposed to come to school with a good news Bible. And, you know, every day she'd come home and was like, I couldn't find one. I couldn't find one. A Bible? A Bible. At that time, and it was 82, I think, 83. Yeah, so it was tough to find things in general. And I just thought, let me pray. I mean, that's all they used to tell us in school was, if you pray, you'll, um, you'll get the things that you want. So I thought, let me pray. So I prayed. And it was, you know, it was a child's prayer. I just thought, look, God is supposed to love me. He said if I ask him for anything, he'll give it to me. You know, we, we used to read very fundamental but true scriptures of, you know, God so loved the world. If you ask, I'll give you. You know, these are fundamental things. And as a child, I wasn't processing, you know, I asked and last time this didn't happen or that didn't happen. I just thought, hey, the guy said if I ask you, he'll give it to me. So it was simple. God, I need a good news Bible. And I knew who would be bringing me a gift on my birthday. It would be my aunt. And so I said, bring me a good news Bible. And she did. She, she brought me a Bible. But as you read, it wasn't a good news Bible. So, 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 so the Bible came in. It wasn't a good news Bible, it, but at least it was a Bible. It was a Bible. It was a Bible, yes. How did you feel? I was very disappointed. I, I remember that so clearly because I remember looking at it and thinking, what am I going to do with this Bible? It's not a good news Bible. I'm going to be in trouble. I'm going to go to class four, and, and I will have a good news Bible. What, what, what I have Bible this, is it? It was a children's Bible, just a picture. And you're not a senior. How, how can, how can I be reading children's Bible? <laughs> you know, just thinking about it, so for, the, for context, for anyone listening, you're heading to your eighth birthday. Yes. You read about a God who answers prayer. You ask for a Bible from somebody who has brought you a cake all her life. She brings a Bible 
wrapped up, you open it and it's a Bible, and you say, no, God, the version I asked for, you, you failed that <laughs> test. Is that what the Bible calls childlike faith? I believe it is. I really think that that is just us trusting. I mean, it's like asking your, your parents to give you something. Your expectation is that you get what you want. And you have your specs. Yeah. My daughter says to me, I want KFC, and it comes with specs. You know, and if you don't bring the right specs, there's great disappointment. <laughs> it's like, didn't the, you hear what I asked for? The audacity you know, of disappointment. <laughs> So, yeah, so it's it was the same thing with me. I just felt as if God must not know what a King James Bible, what, what a good news Bible is. He, he just didn't the, know what it was. For the benefit of several years of now knowing him, is there some merit in working with God that way? Just knowing what you're asking him and believing that he understands your prayer? I think there's a lot of merit in it. But there's also a lot of merit in recognizing that God will give each of us what is best for us. Not what we, not, not, not always, what we, always what it's we want. It's not always what we want, but it is definitely what is best for us. And on my eighth birthday, that Bible, that children's Bible was what I needed. Because I read it. I would never have read a, a, a good news Bible at eight. Especially because I ended up leaving the school. I, I never went to class four in, uh, in, in Richurch. So if I had gotten a good news Bible... I wouldn't have read it because I wasn't in class four. But because I got a children's Bible, I read it. I read it from cover to cover several times. And that formed the foundations of your, your knowledge about God. Still today, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego, and the fourth guy, I see the picture. I like that you refer to God <laughs> as a guy. Is, oh, that, yeah. is that how close you feel to God? Yes, I, I feel like God is our friend. You know, He's God. He gets the reverence. Certainly, He's God. You know, he created all of us. But he's cool. He, he wants to cool. chat. Yeah, he wants to chat. He wants to hang out. He wants to know our problems. He's funny. He has a serious times, you know. But I don't find God to be unreachable and far off waiting to punish us. I find him very accessible. Is, do you think that the way we've, let me use the word advisedly, the way we've packaged God mm -hmm. has disconnected him from the young people have we failed to reach them or connect with them with a God who is real, who is cool, who they can relate to? I think so. And I think so because, you know, think about your friends. Even when we were kids, even today, you as a priest, I'm sure when you are in a casual setting and a priest walks in, your whole attitude changes because a God person has walked in. And so your behavior must change. Your mannerisms must change. Everything about you must change. And so our young people become good people in the presence of God. They're not real people. They're not letting their hair down so that we can truly understand what their challenges are. Instead, they are putting on a show. But God is not deceived by that show. And we've, we've prevented our young people from, having, from seeing the God who is interested in working with them as they are and moving them to the place where they don't have to pretend anymore. One of the central themes of your book, if I had to give it a different title apart from Broken for Use, mm -hmm. one of the central themes is the quest for external approval. I think it's a central pivot around the book, around which the book evolves. Yes. And I would like to explore that theme because it's very, very, it's a huge issue. Mm -hmm. You say most of us live our lives trying to please other people, trying to score points in the marketing scheme we've created in our minds about, oh, make us acceptable 
let's use the word again, cool. <laughs> Help us to understand this quest for external approval. So I think growing up, we all, you know, the world has standards, okay? And some of them are real standards, some of them are standards that we perceive in our heads, but they are standards nonetheless. From my case, and I'll talk from my perspective, I had gone from being at Richurch to going to GIS. When I got to GIS, there was a different world altogether. And, and this is nothing against the school, it's just a way that the school is and the, and the way, it's more realistic. So Richurch was a more sheltered place, we were all churchgoers, we had that in common. But at GIS, where it's a secular school, um, there were clear distinctions in terms of money. There were clear distinctions in terms of color. There were light-skinned people and dark-skinned people. This was a phenomenon I wasn't familiar with. Um, at we mentioned Father Campbell who said he, he had never seen an African except in the geography books. <laughs> it was too funny. <laughs> you know. So all of a sudden, I started to see, and maybe it was just a function of the fact that I was getting older, but all of a sudden I started to see distinctions in human beings, that not all human beings are equal, if, if you will, you know. And so clothes, shoes, you know, because the previous school, everybody wore the same uniform and so on. GIS had a uniform at the time, but it wasn't the same uniform now it is. It wasn't the same shoes now it is. So it was easy to see who had, who didn't have, who was trying to have, you know. And I also had the disadvantage, if you will, of being a really skinny child. You know, I just was a very skinny girl. And so in terms of coming into teenage years where boys are interested in girls and so on and so forth, I just wasn't one of the people anybody was interested in because I was skinny. I didn't have any of the things that made boys interested in girls. And so I saw myself as an outsider. And I was struggling to find a niche, a way to fit in, a way to to become, to add value, if you will. And so I was looking for different things. I was trying to figure out, is it in academics? Is it in um, trying to hang out with the right people? Wh what is that space? So, Rebecca Ufori-Buatin, this struggle for acceptance or acceptability, you say it took you to trying different things for the benefit of a parent listening, for the benefit of a young person going through the same questions and struggles. Help us to appreciate how far this quest or this struggle took you? So for me, naturally I'm an introvert. I'd rather just be by myself. But I felt as if that wasn't the way to fit in, that wasn't the way to be cool. And so if people wanted to go, as, as I became an older teenager, if people wanted to go out to clubs and so on, they'd say, oh, come along, let's go. And I had the benefit of having a car. That actually was ultimately what made me... And it was an Audi car. It was an Audi car. So, so, so today you came out to an Audi, I said, oh, is, 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 I, I know, but just the mental picture of the Audi. You know, so that became my, my crutch. That became the thing that people used me for. So it was more like... Well, if you're going to bring your car along, then I suppose you can hang out with us. And so it was, you know, trying to find the right clothes. It was going out to places I didn't necessarily want to go to, but I felt as if it would make people like me more. So a lot of young people get into situations that 
it's a peer pressure thing. They are really not interested in it. They don't enjoy it. But for the sake of being accepted by other people, they, they delve into it. Did your parents know? I don't think so. And I think it's just a function of the fact that all young people, teenagers, are very adept at having two lives, a life before their parents. Tell me about, is it so, can I call it duality? <laughs> well, I mean, it's just the way teenagers are. They, they, they have a, a home personality, a, a, around my parents' personality, and then they have who they are with their friends. And it's just the way it is. So should a parent listening to you settle their minds to the fact that the child they see at home or the teenager they see at home is not necessarily all that there is to their child? They should work on trying to understand their teenager better, on trying to be less judgmental of their teenager. So, you know, get the teenager to open up, not to judge, but to know and to advise. And also, I think as parents, we often create the impression I think we do better now, but I think our parents always created the impression that they never went through the things that we go through. They never had an interest in the things that we have an interest in. And so there's always a sense of they can't relate. But I think more parents can relate than their teenagers are aware of. And we should be able to have these open conversations because at the end of the day, whatever it is you are trying to not let your teenager find out, they are finding out from somebody who has far less information then, then they should. Are we unreal sometimes? We are very unreal. Hypocritical? I don't know if hypocritical is the word. I think you don't it's want to fear. offend them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fear. I think we are afraid of, we know about all the vices that are out there. So as parents, we are afraid of what our children can get into. But, you know, our children are out there. How much time do they spend with us? You know, they are out there. And so if we are not going to be the ones to advise them on what to get into, what to stay away from, what the vices are. It is their friends who know just as little as they do who are going to misinform them. Uh, let me settle on anger. I mean, I, I, I took note of your thoughts about fear. And you mentioned, you just mentioned the parents are sometimes afraid to know what is there, so they know there's something in that box, but <laughs> out of fear will not open it. But let's talk about anger. You describe how your life got to a point where you were angry. And that anger ultimately led to a revenge list. Yes. Help me to understand it. <laughs> I think I felt as if, you know, anger revolves around um, unmet expectations. So you expect... What, what were you expecting? I was expecting people to like me. Why? <laughs> because I couldn't think of any reason why they shouldn't. And... I, I didn't dislike anybody. You know, did, it wasn't, you, did you feel that people didn't like you? I think a lot of times these things happen in our heads. You know, but my brain was telling me that people didn't like me, people rejected me. So I can't vouch for and say that it was necessarily really what was happening. But our reality is happening in our heads nine times out of ten. So for me, I felt as if people didn't like me. I felt as if people came to school, they had cliques, they, you know, people had people. And I had a few friends, but I didn't have the friends I wanted to have. So that was the unmet expectation. There were times when a few people were not nice, you know. But I think the important thing is that as young people, we need to recognize that our teenagers 
are looking for guidance. They are looking for, for us to help them. And for me, I felt angry about the fact that I was not, like I said, people were not accepting me in my mind. And I also felt angry at, the, at God because I felt that if he had made me the way other people, the people who were liked were, then people would like me. So, so you mean God's main offense was that he had made you what you call a skinny girl? Yeah, that was not cool. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. Isn't that, that's why I think your book is a very, a very, at the point, very funny, but also a very, um, it's at one point funny and serious. I mean, yeah. like for instance, you said on your revenge list, God was, God was number one. Yes, Just God for was him, one. him to even qualify to be on that list <laughs> sounded funny, but also sounded very serious. And yeah. So if he tried to even help you in that situation, he was disqualified because he was actually exactly. the number one offender. He was. Clear. And then I found out also that, interestingly... Theory. Why? It's a happy book from the perspective that, like you said, it's funny and it's serious. It's funny because as adults you read it and it's funny. But at the time it was very serious. At the time, those were real issues for me. And I think now, at, as a priest, when I counsel people, I counsel adults who are still where I was when I was 15, 16, who are still burning with pain about things that happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And so for me, it's a real wonder that God would bring me this far. And that, that always tears me up, just how... How far he and I have come. <laughs> Charlie, I think you are a very special person because your ministry will definitely be, be designed, defined, marked by your experiences. Your perspective of God will be marked by how you've traveled this journey and what you have experienced. And I believe that it would... It would make your ministry very unique. I've done this work with young people for all my life. And the reason I'm very interested is because you're exploring themes that are no-go areas for many people. So you talk about God being number one on that list, on the revenge list. I don't know what you wanted to do to him, but he was number one on the list. <laughs> then I saw your French teacher. And that's one thing we have in common. I also hated French because my, my <laughs> French teacher did not make French exciting. But... Your French teacher actually referred to you as a miserable cockroach. Yes. I'm just thinking, do people, adults, children, parents, know how much we hate young people with some of these references? And then there was this headmistress who told you you were not fit for the school. Yes, yes, yes. So my, my headmistress... She was number three on the list, just for the record. She was number three on the list. So mm. she said that. I bombed my mock. Um, I was a science student and I bombed my mock and she said that if I should drop science and do arts because um, if I go ahead and do the, the science, this was for A's, no it was for O's, it was O's, said if I go ahead and do the science, I'll disgrace the school. I was so upset, you know, just the, the whole idea of somebody disparaging me that much. But it was good for me in the sense that it drove me to become a very serious science student. That was ultimately how I ended up becoming a mechanical engineer. I ended up doing a first degree in physics, um, just to make a point. That's a springboard <laughs> university. And, and 
the, a, a, a very special conversation with Reverend Ekuya Oforibuatin. I have about 1,016 questions for her, and we'll go for a brief break. When we come back, let's find out how she accomplished so much in her career, how she became a minister, and very importantly, how she was broken on this journey. That's the part you would love, the broken part. How life seemed to go down, 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 down to the lowest of the low and how God picked the pieces up together. This is Springboard Adventure Invest. We'll go for a brief break and say a big thank you to NTN Pulse, the Enterprise Group, UMB Bank, and the Graphic Business. Please don't go away. Don't be left out. Download the MTN Pulse app from the App Store or Play Store to mash up all day, every day. You can also enjoy more mashup. Just buy the new Mega Bundle and get 3 gigabytes data, extra 400 megabytes for your social apps, and free MTN to MTN calls every Monday. So just go ahead, feel the pulse on MTN Pulse. Just be. We're good together everywhere you go. From Chotro passenger to tier robot car owner. At Enterprise, we take care of life's uncertainties so you are free to make your dreams a reality. Dream big with us. Enterprise, your advantage. UMB was established in 1972 as the premier bank for the corporate and private sector in Ghana. From our very beginning, as the only Ghanaian bank serving all categories of businesses, we set a standard for excellence and innovation over the past 45 years. We've built a financially healthy and strong bank, demonstrated our commitment to our customers and to growing businesses, and exhibited originality and innovation at every turn. At UMB, our focus is built around people, service, products, and technology. These are the key to our present success and our future triumphs. At UMB, we're poised to make a difference not only with our customers, but also in the banking industry. We invite you to share in our future. Our future starts now with you. From football fan to football star. At Enterprise, we take care of life's uncertainties, so you're free to make your dreams a reality. Dream big with us. Enterprise, your advantage. Hi, I'm Doreen Nando, and you are on Springboard, your virtual university. Welcome back to Springboard, your virtual university. Today, in the engine room with Reverend Ikea Ofori Boatin, unpacking a story that you would love to hear over and over again as we also look at this book that i happily recommend to you if you're listening on radio it's called broken for use nicely designed with a cracked or broken glass by reverend Ikuya ofori button endorsed by several leading people and described as a must read and i add my voice to that and say you will love it it's a journey beautiful one at a time in your life where you were angry with god put him on your revenge list you were thinking of what to do to him you found yourself going to a cathedral. Yes. And yet when a friend in the book, a friend called David, suggested that you could one day become a priest, you were so angry that you fought him. Yes. Was there no conflict or contradiction in that? No, not in my mind. Help me to understand it. I mean, a priest. priest would be working for God, the very God who 
it's not nice to me. Who um, I had some some uh, I don't know if it's crudoso or trauma. I had something on my legs, you know. And people used to tease me about, oh, this was God's fault. How on earth was I going to become His priest? I just found it severely irritating. But I also didn't relate the cathedral to God. I just it was church. It was a calm place to be. But again, it speaks to the fact that I didn't have a conscious relationship with God. Clearly, I had some kind of relationship with him, but it wasn't one that I was managing. It was one that he knew we had, but I was yet to come into the relationship consciously. And so poor David, he was later to become the prophet, <laughs> but poor David, just suggesting that you be a priest, yes. he was off from oh, where you was, sat. It was terrible. I mean, we still laugh about it till today. When I became a priest, he was very amused. He's still your friend? Oh, we're great buddies. Yes, yes, yes. Right, wow. Yes. And so you describe in your book the very first time you were ordained serving communion, probably about 20 years or so after, 22 years after. Yes. And in the queue of people to receive communion, you lift up your eye, and there's the colleague who said you'd be a priest, and you said, over my dead body. <laughs> Yes, there is David, beaming from ear to ear. And he actually traveled? He actually had no idea. He, he lives in Atlanta. And, traveled uh, all the way from U.S. just to attend. Day. He came with his family. It was incredible. Came with his parents, everybody, to, um, to support me. That was really, really touching. But, um, but yeah, and at the end, you know, he said to me, when, when the ordination was done, he said, well, you know, maybe I should become a prophet. Prophet David. <laughs> With the benefit of hindsight, I'm sure you understand, you understand why you and David were so miles yes. apart. I don't know what he saw, but for him to mention that you will be a priest and for you to say, not on my life, because at that time in your life, ostensibly you were also called Miss Friday elsewhere. I was, I was. Help us understand Miss Friday. So Miss Friday, so every Friday I would go to Fridays. I don't even know if it still exists. It's, it was a club in Sakumono. And every Friday... I, I drove past it on the way to a wedding, so I think oh, it's still, still there. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't think that bouncer is still there. I don't think he's still bouncing. Oh, there's a bouncer there. So, yeah, so I would go because it was cool, you know. And I remember distinctly that I didn't enjoy it. There were a number of things I did. So I would go to there. I'd go there, and I'd go to... Labadi Beach used to have a beach party. And, you know, I'd be there through to, like, 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. And... I didn't enjoy any of those things, but I, it was almost like this, this, this is the sacrifice to be part of the in crowd. So you need to go. Let's talk about Joseph, an interesting character. Not his real name, I found out later. Yes. But an interesting character I saw in the book, somebody that the first person you fell in love with. And every experience you have, I'm trying to relate it to the young person listening and seeing, is this their reality as well? Tell me about Joseph falling in love. <laughs> losing, gaining, and losing again. Help me to understand. I think, you know, like all young people, when we come to a certain age, you're looking for, you, you naturally gravitate towards looking for a partner. I think it happens for everybody. And I met this young man, wonderful young man. We really got along. How old were you then? Really, I was seven, 16, 17. Did you know what you wanted? No, 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 I didn't. You know, but that's the thing. You, you know, really when, care. when you're that age, you believe you're in control of your life. You believe you are fully aware of yourself. You're grown. You're no longer a child, you know. So, no, of course, I didn't know what I wanted. But um, 
but it worked. And then because I was so searching for a place to belong, and finally I'd met somebody who didn't judge me. You know, we were just cool. So that was, it, it, was, it was nice. It was, it was comfortable. It was a good feeling. Um, yeah, and then it ended. <laughs> you talk about he having to travel, and that one too was God's fault. Thank God, my bro. <laughs> I know, very much. <laughs> yes, so um, he left the country, and I felt as if, you know, God, you, right when you saw that I'd finally found a friend who was truly a genuine friend who I liked, who got along well, then you set it up so that he left the country. And so, yeah, I blame God. That was God's fault, too. I'm just trying to find out how sometimes in our lives, because you don't understand the future and we can't thread everything, we think we know what we want and it's God's fault that we don't get what we think we need. But with the benefit of hindsight, Romans 8 says all things work together for good. Would you see that that was the case in this instance? I think so. And I think... This idea that God gives us what we want is a failing on the part of all of us as Christians to truly read and understand what Scripture says. It doesn't say that. It doesn't actually say that God will just give us what we, what we want because we want it. It speaks about it, it being in accordance with His will. And to a large extent, I think we, we haven't taken the time of to truly understand what God's will is in terms of his desire for all of us to find salvation and that everything that happens in this world is geared towards increasing his kingdom. So he structures it that way. But we always think about the fact that, well, God said, if I ask, I'll get it, and I asked, and I didn't get it, therefore God has failed me. But it's towards something. And if what we are asking for is not towards that thing. We're not going to get it. Because his is the kingdom, the because power, and the glory. Because his is the kingdom, not ours. <laughs> but he must give us a daily deliberate. That one's going to give us. <laughs> yeah, but you see, what, what we perceive as our daily bread, sometimes it's not bread at all. What, what is it? Oh, it's all chocolate, all kinds of other things. Oh, <laughs> that's how you are cool. That's so how you are cool. We are, not, we are not focused on the fundamentals of our faith. Yeah, you think the church has failed in some instances to structure our message properly? I think to a large extent, the church has not been able to get people to truly understand that it is God's glory. We are here for God's glory, not for our own glory. And when we understand that we are here for God's glory, then we, everything we do is structured towards that, and we work towards that. And I, I don't think the church has been able to, to capture that in the minds of a lot of people. But all of us make up the church, so it's not an issue of the priest and the pulpit. Right. Let me settle on a subject that is very central to the lives of many people as they grow. Yes. And we are getting the benefit of using your life, what I may call your experiences, the good, the bad, the ugly, your pain, to learn something that is we are grateful for. So let's talk about marriage. Sure. Help us to understand the Genesis, the Exodus, the Leviticus, <laughs> the Numbers, and the Deuteronomy of marriage in your case. 
So in my case, I, you know, marriage was, I was under pressure to marry. I felt I was under pressure to marry. And again, you know, a lot of these things are perception. You know, I felt as if I had done all the career things. I had a really good job. I was graduated mechanical engineer. I had a master's degree in mechanical engineering. I was almost wrapping up my MBA. So career-wise, I'd got it right. But then the issue of marriage suddenly sprung up. And I think a lot of times as parents, we, we fail our youngsters in the sense that from the time our kids are like four or five years, we start telling them, oh, you'll be a doctor, you'll be an architect, you'll do this, you'll do that, you know. And yet career ends at age 60. But the one that is for a lifetime, which is marriage, when you're 23, you know, you walk into the, the kitchen sleepily looking for some water, and then you are suddenly hit with, hey, now you're not worried. And then that begins a quest for a spouse with no information, you know, so... So you felt unprepared? You, 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 I mean, that's not necessarily what happened to me, but that's what happens to a lot of young people. But I felt grossly unprepared. I, I just didn't know what to look for. And, you know, I knew the person needed to have a job. But in terms of, first of all, what is the purpose of marriage? The purpose of marriage is to represent the relationship between Christ and the church. It's an evangelical tool. Mm. So uh, what is happening in our marriage is telling the non-Christian what is happening between Christ and his church. So if we are, we are insulting our spouse, that is the representation of the relationship between Christ and his church. It's disrespectful or it's violent or it's abusive, whatever it is. So if we have that in mind then we know that marriage is a ministry. It's not a rite of passage. It's not something that you do because you've come of age and therefore you must marry. For me, I married out of a come of age and a variety of things that were not the real reason why a person should marry. And I was not getting married with a whole host of information that, that as young people we should have. So I erred. I made a mistake. And that mistake ended up breaking my life down to to a place where I, I came down almost nothingness. And wow. I needed to figure out what's my next step. Without all the details, I mean, for anyone who wants the story, which I think everyone must get, I would recommend that they get the book and read it because the way it's told in the book, the, the kind of details and the weaving, you can't do everything today. But I would, just for the benefit of somebody seeing, there you go, you're touching on something that is very, very important to mm. me. When you say you made a mistake, what was the mistake? Was it a choice of person? Was it an approach to marriage? Was it the decisions you made when you got married? What was the mistake? The mistake was I didn't know myself. Mm. And so I didn't even know what to look for in, in a spouse. The mistake was I wasn't happy within myself. I wasn't, I had no inner peace. I was not settled within myself. So many of us, when we are at that level of insecurity and pain and so on, we are looking for someone to be a solution to our problem, somebody to be the, the salve over our wounds. But that's an unfair request to make of anybody, mm. that let's marry so that you can solve my problems. That, that's leads to problems and if we can't find inner peace within ourselves when we are single if we can't find our joy our satisfaction our happiness as single people there's no way we'll find it in marriage was it dead on arrival was in that case since you say you didn't know yourself and therefore what you wanted and you were insecure and 
unprepared and therefore kind of under pressure, would you say that they married you as dead on arrival? On hindsight, I mean, obviously looking at it now, I'd say yes and no. It, I think it was salvageable, but I think that that kind of, and I'm saying this for the benefit of people who may be in a relationship now where they have this type of struggle, the solution is not to end the marriage. It can't be solved. But it needs to be solved with the right type of help. It needs to be solved with counseling, the right type of counseling. It's not an issue of just, oh, you know, make it work, make it work. You know, it's not that. Each person who finds themselves in a marriage where they, they have these kinds of struggles, the first point of call is self. You know, we, we need to examine self, examine our own injuries, our own wounds. I mean, I always describe it like, it's like breaking your leg, right? And then saying that, oh, it will heal over time. Yeah, it will heal. But either it will always hurt or you'll always limp. It will always have a problem. And a lot of our emotional wounds, especially in this society, we don't deal with them because the notion is that when you go and see a psychologist, you are crazy. You know, <laughs> so when you seek any kind of emotional help or support, the, the general view is that you must have some kind of mental problem. But so many of us struggle with emotional wounds. The kind of pain I was coming out of secondary school with, coming out of university with, you don't take that into marriage. You, you solve those problems within yourself. So if I understand right, the broken person who has not resolved their issues is likely to transport those issues into a relationship and make unrealistic demands yeah. that could stretch the relationship beyond this elastic point. Yes, the, the hurt person. Because hurt people, you know, we give what's in us. That's all we have to give. And in your case? So hurt people hurt people. So in your case, you both hurt each other? In, in, I mean, I'll certainly hold my responsibility. You've got to remember, there's, there's another person involved in this. Right. And so I'm not going to um, go into a lot of detail about right. this. But yeah, I own my responsibility in this. I, I realized that I was not ready for marriage. And because I wasn't ready for marriage, I, I took a lot of my negativity and, and my hurt and my pain and made unrealistic demands of the relationship. Let me ask you a very personal question. The first morning you woke up after your divorce, how did you feel? That's a tough one. I felt... I felt like a failure. I, you know, because that was the first truly major thing that I had failed at. You know, we all fail at little things. Don't, don't mind the French teacher. No no <laughs> <laughs> but you know, this was a life failure. It wasn't, um, it wasn't just one of those things you bounce back from. It was a life failure. We have a child. I was, How old was the child then? At the time, she was just almost a year old. Um, How's she doing now? Oh, she's wonderful. <laughs> Asking for KFC and all kinds of things. I tell you. So there was a lot of fear. Um, fear of what am I going to do? Fear of how do I face people? Fear of what answers do I give? You know, we, we live in a society, especially you have all these aunties, and they, they, they are not regulated in their commentary. I can imagine. <laughs> you know? So what do you say? Do you respond? Um, how do you respond? And I remember I prayed a lot. I mean, at this point, I was, 
I was at a loss as to what God wanted. You know, I'd gone in and out. When you read the book, you, I'd gone in and out of my relationship with God. Sometimes we were great, sometimes we were, you know, we were on and off. But I just felt like I had prayed for the marriage to survive, and it didn't. And, and I couldn't understand why. And I, I remember very distinctly feeling like when I prayed, my prayers hit the ceiling and fell back on me. I, I remember feeling that and thinking, why aren't you listening to me? Let me pinch a page in a minute from your corporate life and then I'll settle finally on ministry. Mm. Just for context, this person that you describe who, who went to the point where you felt this is the lowest of the low, everything is gone. You mentioned the fact that you lost so much. Yeah. Let's swing to the part of how well your corporate life was going. My corporate life went really well. In, in, initially, after, after university, um, I quickly picked up a job. I did well, did my MBA, was promoted. I was doing really well. Where were you based? I was based in the US. I was working uh, with an engineering uh, company. And things went well. You know, my, my corporate life never had a problem, primarily because I was very well prepared for corporate. I'd been preparing for corporate since day one. I mean, you start preparing for corporate when you're in primary school, the subjects you choose, you know, all of those things are guiding you to make sure that you're successful. So there was no challenge there. When I came here, I, with, with, with my personal crisis, I found that things were falling apart. And that was actually when I decided to go to seminary. Help me to understand the trigger point for somebody who had put God on the red list. Yes. What was the trigger point? So it was the red list. So my point was this. I wanted to understand God. You know, I felt as if I kept hearing about God with all my challenges, my crises, my praying, my prayers hitting the ceiling and falling back on me. I wanted to truly know God as an adult. But I felt like every, I, I used to church hop a lot. And every church I went to had a slightly different view of God. And I thought, you know, I'm not interested in the church view of God. I want to know who God is because I want to make a decision about God. But I felt as if with everything that was going on, part of me wanted to walk away from God. But I didn't just want to walk away. I wanted to know God. Let God know that I know him. And then so you can tell him your friends. <laughs> <laughs> tell him my peace of mind and walk away. I can imagine. You know, so... And, you know, it's weird when, you know, when I think about it now, it's so weird because in all of this, the only place I could seek answers was from God. So I was still praying and asking him, like, okay, well, so if I want to know you and, and all of that, what do I do? And seminary just kept coming up. I remember I was going for a run and I heard God distinctly say to me, if you want to know me, study me. Because that's how you learn about things, you study them. So that's when it became clear to me that I needed to go to seminary. But I didn't want to go to Trinity Theological Seminary because I thought I'd become a priest and I didn't want to be a priest. So you just went to seminary just to know God? So I went to seminary just to know God. So the God you were angry at? The God I was so angry So you could tell him a few things? Yes. And what happened? <laughs> I discovered in seminary that... So where did you go? You didn't want to go to Trinity. Where did you go? I ended up going to Trinity. 
Okay. <laughs> I tried a whole host of other seminaries and Bible schools trying not to trying not to go to, to Trinity. Wow. And you know, God just blocked every single one of them systematically. I mean now I see it, but at the time I was like, ah, why is this thing not working? Do, do you think your life is like a chess game that you try and then God crosses you, you I try think everybody's life is like that. I think we, we just don't see it. But I think everybody's life is a chess game where we, we play a move and God plays another move and hey. it forces us down a particular path. But it sounds it sounds scary, interesting and beautiful at the same time. Yes, I think it's finish that part about Trinity and the chess move. So other Bible schools didn't work. So eventually I remember I was driving past Trinity and in the book I talk about the fact that I drove past Trinity and I started getting a stress headache because it was there was this thought in my head, you know, God was just like, go to the school and pick up a form. And I was like, I don't want to go to Trinity. So eventually I went just to pick up the form. And when I went in, I saw the dean and I said to him, I said, look, do you have a program for people who want to know God but don't want to be priests? <laughs> and he said, yeah. He said, yeah, we have a program like that. It's a master's program. Are you interested? And I was like, yeah. So he gave me the forms. And that was one of the first times I started to understand the peace you feel when you're in line with the will of God. Because the moment I picked up those forms, I felt at peace. And my worry was, you know, how would my mother perceive it? You know, how would people perceive it? And when I said to my mom I wanted to go to seminary, she was so excited. She took the form, she filled, you know what I mean? Everything just happened. In, within three, four days, I had signed forms, everything was done. And I was on my way to go and take an exam and, and do an interview. And for seminary. once, you didn't really care what other people thought. And for, for once, exactly, this was for me. I didn't care what anybody thought. This was for me. This was the first one, the first few things that was truly for me. And God is fascinating. You know, seminary made me see that it's we who bump our heads because we don't pay attention to God. We don't listen carefully enough to God. But for him, he just loves us. He loves us no limit. He has no desire for any of us to be hurt or to be sad or to be upset. But he's also not going to just let us go just so we can have what we want. If he has to restrain us, if he has to, to, to control situations so that we end up in that absolutely perfect situation. I look at my life now and I'm thinking, God, I'm so glad you, you managed this situation. I don't know what I would have been doing if, um, if he hadn't led me down this path to see that all the things that I'd always loved to do, the writing, the speaking, you know, I could do all of them practically on a daily basis. Um, with a book that has all the information I'll ever need. And that is the inner peace that you end with. And that is the inner peace that you end with. Reverend Akeofri, but you've taken us on a journey that started from a quest to know a God who answers prayers specifically, and then entering into a maze that took you left, right, center, up, up down. <laughs> you literally almost lost everything. But God piecing you together, and you still having issues with him, till that point where you finally admit that even in the darkest part of your life, God was there. When we come back to you to wrap up and tell us what's next for you in terms sure. of your ministry and how all this has shaped the kind of priest that you are. Mm -hmm. But for the benefit of those who take notes, I have a very serious uh, list of attendees who take their notes very seriously yes. and we have a big debate on social media about which is their favorite for for reasons you can tell because mm -hmm. every part of your story is like somebody saying yes 
that's me in his thoughts. <laughs> so, for the benefit of those who are listening to us who want to know the top 10 lessons I've gleaned from Reverend Ikea for Watson, number one is about childlike faith. Number two is about a God who is cool. That's one of my favorites, a God who is just cool. The third one is external approval, the fact that we live our lives very often looking for approval from other people. The fourth is about duality, and that's for us parents that, listen, get close to your child and help them to be able to open up to you without being judgmental. If not, you will find out that there is one life they live at home and one life they live elsewhere. That's, that's, that's a serious one. Yeah. Number five is about a revenge list that had God as the number one. The French jazz number two and the head mistress as number three. <laughs> and the list grew. The sixth is, is about you'll be a priest one day versus you'll be Miss Friday. And, and the juggle between will you become a priest or you will just seek, seek answers from club. And the seventh is about God's will and his glory and not what we want. She says, God will give you what is good for you and what will bring his glory, not what you want. Number eight was the sensitive one about marriage being misunderstood because we go in there looking for somebody to solve our problem without even knowing ourselves, who we are, and what we need. Number nine is about seeking God. She went to seminary not to become a priest, but just to seek this God that she had issues with and tell him a few things. And she talked about the chess game of God, navigating everything in the course of your life. The tenth and the final one is my favorite, the inner peace that comes with knowing that He's in absolute control, and from day one, he's just been working things to achieve an ultimate purpose. Safu, yes. what kind of priest have you become as a result of these experiences, and what should Ghana, Africa, and the world expect from Reverend Ekia Oforibuatin going forward? <laughs> as I think I've become a very practical priest. I... <laughs> I try and make sure that the sermons I give, the talks I give, are things where somebody can walk out and do something with it immediately. You know, so it's practical and, and I try and keep it interesting. For me, it's important that as Christians, we see that God is in everything. I am a big proponent of God at the center of it all. Mm. So I don't believe in the concept of there's a, a secular world and a religious world as if God created the world and then isolated himself in one corner called religion and left everything else to burn in hell. I think God can use anything and anyone and he's demonstrated that throughout his scripture to speak to us and to, to bring us to his understanding. So I just want to be the kind of priest where people feel like they can come to me and tell me anything. But anything the, the low haircut alone will make the young people feel happy. <laughs> Jale, it's not easy. I like it. You know what, look into oh, you are a cool, cool, funky priest. Please look into the camera and yes. talk to that young person going through the exact things you went through who feels God has issues to answer to him or her about and feels nobody understands me. Take a minute to speak to them and give them some light, some hope, some assurance. Okay. So the thing I want you to know is that you are not your mistakes. You are not the challenges, the insecurities that you feel. All of those things may be something that's happening to you, but it is not who you are. Now, if you remember the Lord Jesus Christ, when he resurrected from the cross, the cross was something that happened to him. He was nailed to it and he died. But when he resurrected, 
one of the first things he did was he went to meet his disciples and he showed them his scars. And I find that really profound because in showing them his scars, he was saying that, you know what, I'm not ashamed of what has happened to me. I was nailed to the cross. I will become death. That cross could be so many things in your life. It could be rape, it could be addiction, it could be insecurity, it could be anything. And you can overcome that cross. And when you do overcome that cross, don't hide those nail prints. Show them to somebody else. And that's what I want to do for you, is to show you my scars. I'm a normal girl. Let you see that, yes, I've been through, but I've overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit. And any and all of us can overcome. And that overcoming remains, becomes our testimony. That overcoming becomes our ministry, becomes a thing we can share with other people. So whatever you are going through now, I'm here to tell you that as long as Jesus has come overcome the cross, that Holy Spirit that resurrected him from the cross is the same Holy Spirit that is in you. So whatever it is, you can overcome it. You will overcome it. Get a copy of my book. It will encourage you for you to see that it doesn't matter what it is. You are not your mistakes. All they've done is strengthen you so that you can help somebody else overcome. God bless you. And what can we say? Amen. <laughs> my name is Albert Okran, and on behalf of Team Springboard, led by Comfort, and on behalf of MTN Pulse, the enterprise group UMB Bank, and the graphic business that will publish a full transcript of this interview on Tuesday on actually page 18. This is a big thank you to you, Reverend Ekria of for hanging out with us and then also for giving us a preview and insight into this book, Broken for Use, which I believe is a tool God will use to mend many broken lives. I want to say a big thank you. Thank you. Thank you. God very bless much. you. God bless you. God bless you too. And God bless you. Uh-huh.